Hello and welcome. You're listening to the SPAG Dialogue podcast. Hello everyone. I am Neha Chandra, Healthcare Communication Specialist with SPAG. And today I'm in conversation with Aparupa Vatsalya, who's a sexuality educator and founder of Bibliotherapy, a mental health book club regarded as a safe space for healing through reading and psychoeducation. Also joining us is Farah Manikshaw. Farah is a therapist at Umeet Child Development Center, where she works with disabled and neurodivergent children, as well as their families. Additionally, she has her own private practice where she works with queer and neurodivergent adults. She also freelances as a journalist and writes about subjects related to mental health from a socio-political lens. So, on account of World Mental Health Day, we are here to understand how coming to terms with one's gender identity and sexual orientation has an impact on one's mental health and of those around them. For the Indian LGBTQIA community, there is a constant conflict between one's internal reality regarding gender and then trying to fit in what the world deems as normal and acceptable. This can be highly distressful and have an adverse impact on one's mental health. So jumping on to the first question, Aparupa, Through your Instagram page, you talk about various facets of sexuality and mental health. Tell us a bit about your mental health journey and coming to terms with your identity. Thank you for this question, Neha, because my page and my project also come from a deeply personal space, which is why, you know, unlike other educators, you do see me share a lot about my life and my experiences. I think the page was almost created as a resource to myself while I came to terms with my own identity and while I navigated my mental health journey. About five years ago, I'd say, was when I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And I've been in therapy and have been taking medication ever since. And uh, just last year, I received my autism diagnosis. Uh, although I don't uh, place it in the same category as you know, depression or anxiety. I do. I just feel like neurodivergence is another way of being. It does present with quite a few challenges in a deeply ableist world. Also, you know, other facets of my identity, such as, you know, my queerness, my political identity, you know, my womanhood and so on, are all, you know, not even in the top three uh, you know, markers of my own identity, right? And I think that is that is the beauty of exploring and discovering who you really are. If, if you were to ask me who I am, who Aprupa is, I wouldn't even identify with all these things that form such a definitive part of my identity as something that I really identify on a day-to-day basis. I'd say I'm a cat lover. I'd say you know, I'm obsessed with the smell of books, trying not to drink alcohol because it interferes with my medicine and so on and so forth. So I think um, that's really the aim of my my Instagram project as well, which is to humanize folks and, and, and to also, you know, find a space where I'm beyond all these things, where I'm all these things, of course, but I'm also, you know, beyond in between and um, yeah, so much more. So I think I think it's just a space. It's it's almost like a personal journey for me. Uh, I think each week I sort of figure out what topic I'm interested in, and I use that uh, platform to to explore them. I think you know I really like the fact that you said that there's so much to a person, and that's really something that I get. You know that you're bringing out through your response, and you know Farah, uh, the same question for you. You know you're a practicing therapist, and you're part of the queer community. So how was it for you to communicate about your identity? You know first with yourself 
yourself and then with your people so i think for me i actually figured out uh, about my sexuality a lot earlier than i was a therapist i i figured it out quite early in my teenage years um and i think for me uh, coming into my queerness so um generally um there's this narrative of that figuring out your queerness or uh, coming out has to be about a lot of suffering it has to be about a lot of shame on secrecy um and and of course that does exist because you're living in such a queer negative environment but there are also other narratives and um, i think we don't talk about queer joy enough and um, and and for me that that it was that other narrative where i felt like the label um of being bisexual brought a lot of congruence for me it brought a lot of ease and um it it, it was almost like coming home and uh, lately i think i uh, i identify with it even more strongly because it's a it's a very political decision given how systemic bias and biphobia is adversely affecting the mental health of bisexuals pretty badly and that being said it it does it does come with a lot of privilege that i that i had such a i had such a wonderful experience coming out or um, because i knew that uh, i had safe spaces to explore or i had the knowledge that this was there was nothing wrong with being bisexual or that there wouldn't be any violence what i declare in this identity for myself and and in terms of people and and sharing my identity with people i i felt like the process of finding myself or the process of figuring out my identity happened through people as well like it happened relationally like it was through conversations it was through questioning and um and college was um a very safe space for me to figure these things out and farah you know you just said that you came to terms with your identity when you were in your teen years so you know somewhere we feel that this the information or understanding yourself somewhere we need to start from ground zero so when i say ground zero i mean at the school level and uh, for for you know each kid to get that opportunity to understand themselves and that environment that needs to be created which we understand that now it, at this moment probably it is not there you know you work with ummeed so you work with children and uh, how do we really inculcate that culture where we address these gender stereotypes you know create an inclusive culture at the very base level at the school level this is really difficult question to answer in like in briefly um but i try to do my best because um there's there's so much to cover i feel like um i feel like curriculum is one aspect of it um but then there's also workshops and sensitizations there's also the kind of infrastructure that you have in the school and then perhaps we can also talk about the kind of culture that's there uh, that that we can foster for queer inclusivity so um when when it comes to curriculum there's like a lot there's a lot of erasure of not only of queerness um, but also of other marginalized identities so if you look at your history so queerness was and has always been a big part of indian culture that's something that's erased or the fact that the hijra community has been around for centuries um, and that's something that just um isn't a part of our syllabus and and similarly like for other identities as well we never learn about um dalit history and and then moving to like other other subjects um as well that would need a, a radical overhaul of um uh, would be um your your literature whether you look at when you look at queer authors do we also look at the queer subtext in some of their plays and in some of their writing or for biology is it being taught in a very binary very heterosexual way or is there a difference um, that you're trying to bring in the curriculum so in that way the syllabus would itself would need to be 
far more intersectional um, than it currently is. And when it comes to workshops and sensitizations and things like that, um, like, of course, you need, I don't think one sex education workshop is enough. Um, I think it would need to be an ongoing conversation and with, with all the stakeholders involved, not just children, but also um, parents, also staff, also teachers. As I mentioned, uh, infrastructurally, you might want to look at gender neutral washrooms. You might want to look at the kind of uniforms that the school has and whether it's affirming for all the children, whether the kind of intake forms that you have or the kind of administrative uh, paperwork, whether there's just male and female or whether we're making space for other identities, whether your library has resources on sex education that are inclusive, whether there's queer literature that you're intentionally making space for or I'm also thinking about um, affirmative action and hiring queer and trans people because that's un- because that is how you're going to change overall the entire system and make it more inclusive and then once you have all these changes in place um, that's when your culture actually starts to become queer inclusive because there's teachers who are sensitized or teachers who are queer themselves and then the language the teachers use might not be as binary or the ways in which they address bullying may also start to change. So when there's queer negative bullying and harassment, um, how do you ensure that the young person who's experiencing the bullying is safe, but also how do you address the bully's needs and how do you reha- how do you provide for, what, what efforts are you doing to, for rehabilitation there? How are you unpacking these ideas, these queer negative ideas with them and with other people in that class? And of course, mental health support, that's queer affirmative. I think clearly, you know, when you started responding, definitely said there's so much, you know, under this one question that needs to be addressed. And, uh, you know, the fact that this is a conversation that is, it's we've asked now, but it's something that really needs to be addressed. And uh, this is something we keep on sort of talking about. It's, It's a conversation that keeps on evolving. I think where we need to start is to first be open and understand that there is something that needs to be done here. So when I was, you know, researching, we found out these international reports that say that LGBTQ persons are thrice as likely to experience a mental health condition because of, you know, the fact that they're bullied in school, there's rejection, there's workplace discrimination. But in the Indian context, there was very less data in fact next to nothing that I was able to found so this is where I wanted to you know I want to ask up Rupa that how do you think we need to first address the fact that there is not enough data not enough is being talked about I'd say conversations and what you're doing right now is a great example of that, right? You need to invite more queer and trans folks into the conversations, not take up space. And the way I like to describe it is pass the mic, but don't leave the room because we do need your allyship and we do need you to use your privilege, use the voice that you already have, essentially enforce almost these these anti-discrimination policies, not just at a formal level, but also in in, in formal settings. And, um, you know, as Farah was speaking, I was was so inspired and I I had goosebumps. And, you know, I, I also want to use this opportunity to talk to our audience about how cis-heteropatriarchy doesn't just harm women, doesn't just harm queer folks, doesn't just harm folks of a particular identity, it causes harm to everybody. These are violent structures. And in fact, queer and trans individuals actually give you the gift of, of challenging what your identity means and whether you have internalized some of these scripts of what it is supposed to look like, these roles, these gender roles and, and these, these sexual identities that we, that we play. So um, yeah, I think 
you know, research dearth is a very real thing. And it's not just, uh, I mean, even as a woman, I find that for, for a lot of like, for instance, I, I live with PMDD and there isn't enough research on PMDD. There isn't, and I don't, I didn't know whom to go to for a diagnosis, in fact. So um, yeah, very important for us to, you know, have researchers and, and listen to lived experiences. I've been having um, a very interesting conversation with uh, the psychiatrist on, on Instagram. She uh, DM'd me saying how, oh, you know, you can't call yourself autistic, autism is a disorder, so on and so forth. And, and I was trying to explain to her how it's my lived experience and I can choose to process it and I can choose to label it in, in a manner and form that is meaningful to me. And she just refused to back down. And that's another conversation, of course. But really what I'm getting at is it doesn't always have to be numbers. It can also be a story that a person tells you. And, and that is meaningful and that is research so definitely a combination of facts figures and when you say facts we have numbers and we have stories so you know just while listening to all this i i feel like we cannot stress the importance of having a strong support system and a sense of community at this time of you know exploring yourself to actually give room to focus on mental health so aprupa you founded you co-founded a book club bibliotherapy and as I've seen and read about it, it's a non-judgmental space conducive to mental health. So what really went into starting a club like that? And, you know, what was your thought process when you uh, decided to co-found this club? I think, Neha, when I started the book club, I was, I was very naive in calling it a safe space. And I was very naive in calling it, you know, a non-judgmental, inclusive space. And you hear these words being thrown around. They are buzzwords. Um, I'm glad that spaces are actively at least attempting to become more and more safe. But having said that, it's a practice, right? You don't just get to call yourself a safe space and, and that's that. What happens when a conflict arises? What happens when someone feels unsafe? What happens when someone thinks you are the perpetrator? I think those are conversations that need to be had as well. I think some of the reason why I started the book club, which is very similar to the reason why I start most things, I'm interested to learn something, so I might as well invite a community of folks who are interested in, in similar conversations, similar explorations. Uh, that's really came from a very, very selfish uh, space where I, A, wanted to read more. I was also curious about, you know, self-help books and, and, and the whole genre at that point. Yeah, and, and I found a friend who, who wanted to do something similar, and that's really where it came from. But of course, it grew into something more, right? We did a bunch of courses around body neutrality. We spoke about hope, you know, in, in, in the light of our current political situation. So, so I think you also need to allow for it to become you know, what, what it needs to become when the community starts to interact with it and, and not be selfish and, and not be uh, stuck up on what it is supposed to mean. So, so yeah, it, it came from a very selfish space and I, I will freely admit that. But, but I think I'm, I'm glad that I did that and I'm glad that, you know, a lot of uh, queer and trans folks found it to be a safe space and found it to be a space where uh, they felt heard and uh, they felt represented. So, you know, I mean, I mean this, this entire conversation has been a lot about, you know, what, what can communities do? What can individuals do? And, and it's been very interesting to engage in it. But 
I'm, I'm also, you know, so when you talk about families and, and Neha, this is something that I said I would bring up in our conversation as well. And when you said, you know, communities, it's also very important for us to acknowledge the importance of, you know, chosen families. And uh, as queer and trans folks, often we don't have that kind of connection with our natal families and we don't feel safe with them. We don't feel like we can be authentic with them. So, um, and Farah also brought up queer joy and, and, and queer camaraderie. So, um, yeah. I, I just also want to, you know, use this opportunity to uh, give a big shout out to all the chosen families out there and um, all folks who've, you know, found each other and loved each other and have taken care of each other in the light of, you know, the law not necessarily recognizing us as a family. So yeah, that's my tuppence on why I started a book club. You know, you've said that uh, it was for selfish reasons that you started, but it was something you felt strongly about. And to actually find people who feel the same way or who also get that space to express themselves, I think that's what that club intentionally unintentionally came out to be and uh, now that you've brought in this topic about chosen family I really you know want to ask Farah and now we're nearing the end of today's episode but uh, Farah I really want to know your thoughts on the importance of support from the family that you you know biological your chosen family that kind of importance from your family and your peer group and just want you to actually tell us a little bit about your support system and how they played this crucial role in supporting your mental health i was nodding vigorously while uh Aburupa was talking about um how biological family or family of origin can be uh, a site of violence for a lot of queer people and um while i've heard that in the uh, post section 377 era there has been a slight shift it still remains to be a, a space of violence for a lot of queer and trans people so I think queerness is a particularly isolating form of marginalization. Um, queerness and um, and because neurodivergence has come up as well, neurodivergence as well, um, because um, so with other forms of marginalization, like if we're talking about uh, being born a Muslim, um, you do have your family around you as that support system that is also experiencing the same oppression. But um, with queerness, neurodivergence or the disability, very often your family also can be oppressive and it can be particularly isolating and I'm thinking about uh, people who are not quite as privileged um, or maybe people in remote areas where you may not have ever met another queer person before or maybe you don't even have the language to speak of your experience of same gender attraction or dysphoria yeah and in that and and that's why peer support and that's why community becomes all the more important for um, queer and trans people and I think community tends to counter that isolation and counter that aloneness and, and become a source of hope and resource for queer people. But at the same time, um, there's that complexity. And I think Abhiruba was also talking about <laughs> safe spaces. And I think uh, not all identities may feel entirely uh, safe within the queer community as well. That being said, I do have uh, my own small queer community. It's like a, a very strong support system of queer friends. And uh, sometimes it feels like we are creating a small queer world in which uh, we exist together and it's been it's it's been uh, so important for my mental health and uh, there's been so much dialogue about um, queer politics queer literature queer media and uh, yeah it's, it's been really beautiful <laughs> and it's yeah sometimes we tend to forget that straight people even exist I think this is uh, you know something really beautiful that you've expressed here and I really hope that you know we create that culture or 
if we're we're already towards that we're in uh, you know walking that path and we're able to create that culture and you know on this note i really want to thank the both of you for uh, joining the spag dialogue podcast and for participating in this much needed discussion on coming to terms with one's sexual identity and the impact it has on one's mental health for all our listeners this was aprupa and fara and i'm neha chandra and you're listening to spag dialogue thank you for listening if you'd like to tune in to more such conversations subscribe to the spag dialogue podcast or visit our website spagdialogue.com